In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. A bipartisan ticket leads the polls in Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If this is your first time listening to Politically Georgia, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Coming up later, we'll talk about how a judge gave a boost to a Republican statewide contender under investigation for being involved in the fake GOP elector scheme. But first, the big news. A new poll from the AJC is out this morning. And Patricia, it gives us the clearest picture yet of where this race is going. Yes, it does, Greg Bluestein. And I know that you do not celebrate Christmas, but this is just what Christmas is like. Getting poll results is the exact same feeling because you've been waiting and waiting and then you're like, oh, I can't believe it. So yes, now we know uh, how this governor's race is shaping up, how the Senate race is shaping up, and they're not exactly the same, which I find so fascinating. Governor Brian Kemp is polling about five points ahead of Stacey Abrams, while Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, is polling about four points ahead of Herschel Walker. So we've got sort of a split ticket there. A split ticket effect, which is what we've talked about on the show so many times. And Patricia, even though I don't celebrate Christmas, we at the AJC are going to do the best to make this feel like Hanukkah. Eight <laughs> days of poll gifts because we are we totally. are spreading this thing out. You saw the plan that I sent out earlier today. There's, there's about literally eight days of stories um, for this poll and jolt and podcast and all sorts of fun things. So, of course, we'll be covering all the news you know, the, beyond the poll, but we also have a lot of uh, stories planned. And there are sections of the poll that we won't be releasing until later on this week that we'll talk more about in future episodes. But yes, you hit the big themes, Patricia, because this is the first AJC poll since the May primary and June runoff decided candidates in, in the top races. Uh, the clearest snapshot yet of the key races, just four months or so, less than four months before the election. And Senator Warnock, the Democratic incumbent, is slightly ahead of Republican hopeful Herschel Walker. The same poll shows Governor Kemp with an apparent lead over Democrat Stacey Abrams. Let's break it down. Warnock leads Walker 46-43 with about 3% of voters indicating they'll support the Libertarian and about 8% who say they're still undecided. This is likely to be the costliest, one of the costliest races in the nation. This is another race that could determine control of the U.S. Senate. And in an environment where everything seems to be favoring Republicans, Patricia, Raphael Warnock, you know, he has an advantage with resources, but 
an incumbency, but but every other measure, he's he's got an uphill battle, but he's still leading Herschel Walker just outside the margin of error here. Yeah, it feels like Raphael Warnock is still getting big dividends from that race he ran just a year and a half ago when he really clearly defined himself in the mind of Georgia voters. A lot of positive ads, a lot of sort of introductory information about who is this person. He did not have a big negative race to deal with for months and months and months until he got into that runoff. And he really had the field to himself to define himself and tell Georgians who he is. Now, Joe Biden couldn't be doing much worse (laughs) in terms of his numbers. It is bad news for Joe Biden in Georgia, and we can get into that. But somehow, Raphael Warnock is able to just sort of float above that. It does not feel like he is being really held down in the same way by Joe Biden as you would typically expect an incumbent senator to be dealing with. There's a very similar dynamic happening in Arizona with Mark Kelly. He is also a first-term incumbent, uh, ran in a special election, recently elected. He's an astronaut, so he has his own ID, his own identification and identity with Arizona voters. So between the two of them, these are two huge, huge races for Senate Democrats, and they are very pleased to see that those brands, their personal brands, are holding up for now, despite this absolute torrent of negative economic news that Joe Biden is very clearly getting blamed for. But uh, Warnock right now is able to sort of float above that with his own sort of positive impressions. And then, of course, Herschel Walker has just not exactly come blazing out of the gate as a kind of a top tier ready for action candidate either. And I think that that's showing up in his poll numbers as well. It really is. Um, and, and you mentioned this, the phrase split ticket, which is something that we'll be talking a lot about as long as this dynamic holds up. But uh, we're seeing that Governor Kemp leads Stacey Abrams 48, 43 with 7% of likely voters who haven't made up their minds. In this race, it's interesting because basically, uh, you know, less than 1%, a statistically insignificant number of voters are backing the libertarian Shane Hazel and an independent candidate named Al Bartel. So you're not seeing any sort of bleed over into the third party or uh, candidates in that race, unlike in the Senate race, where we're seeing some evidence that Republicans who just can't stomach voting for Herschel Walker are voting either for Raphael Warnock or they're voting for the Libertarian. Deeper into this number, our poll indicates roughly 4% of Kemp voters are defecting to Raphael Warnock. So 4%, so not a huge number, but in a race, you know, with this tight margins, 4% of Republicans who don't vote for Herschel Walker is a big deal. And another 4% are backing a third party contender. And then 9% of Kemp voters say they're still on the fence. So Again, we're seeing ground that is very fertile for Democrats here. If you're Raphael Warnock, that's why you're talking about bipartisanship at campaign stops. That's why you're talking about ways you're working with Republicans, ways you're finding common ground. And if you're Herschel Walker, it's a concern, but you also have four months to make up this. You, have, you also have four months to use your resources to warn voters You know that, that they should give them reasons to vote for Republicans. So I think from his camp, there'll be some guarded optimism about this poll that they're still within striking distance even after all the controversies and and scandals that have that have rocked his campaign oh yeah and uh, to be just three points behind i said four points earlier that was wrong it's three points um to be just three points behind at this point is not a catastrophe given the rather catastrophic nature of some of the press days that Herschel Walker has had. I mean, he's still hanging in there. And that has a lot to do, I think, with his 
kind of very enduring positives among a certain segment, especially of Republican voters. People feel like they know him. You can't tell them anything negative about Herschel Walker that they're going to believe they're going to like him and stick with him. And what you hear from Republicans, what I hear from Republicans, at least, especially at the national level, is that they sort of have not yet begun to fight when it comes to the torrent of negative ad spending that is going to be coming down to Georgia, attacking Raphael Warnock. So I think Republicans are just barely, barely have a toe in the water in terms of sort of the artillery they think they're about to unleash against Warnock and start to really chip away at those numbers. You know, they don't need 50% of people to give up on uh, Raphael Warnock. They just need 2%. Mm-hmm. You know, if that 2% heads over to Herschel Walker, they win the race. So they very much feel like they have a strategy to get Warnock's numbers back down and um, scoot Herschel Walker ahead of that, uh, really based almost entirely on the economy, almost entirely on Joe Biden's numbers, and just trying to just clamp Joe Biden onto Rafael Warnock's ankles and just start to pull him underwater a little bit. Yeah, I like that. The, uh, <laughs> I like, like the, <laughs> the image you just put in our minds. Um, but no, you're exactly right. The barrage is coming. The attack assault is coming. Look, we've talked about this on the show plenty, that Democrats have the overwhelming edge with resources right now. They've got a big financial edge, but it's not like Republicans are uh, floundering in that area. They're just they're just going up against two of the elite fundraisers in national American politics, right? Brian Kemp is incumbent. He has plenty of money. He just doesn't have the eye-popping types of uh, fundraising quarters that Stacey Abrams does. And Herschel Walker is one of the top Republican Senate fundraisers among challengers in the nation. So it's not like he's been, you know, sleeping at the wheel here. He's been able to fundraise a tremendous amount. He just can't keep up with Senator Warnock, who has set all sorts of fundraising records for a midterm election. And just last cycle uh, was part of the nearly billion dollar (laughs) Senate runoff race that shattered all sorts of records. Let's talk about Joe Biden, because you mentioned earlier Warnock's edge is really one of the only bright spots for Democrats in the entire AJC poll, which, by the way, was conducted by University of Georgia School of Policy and International Affairs. President Biden's approval rating is underwater in Georgia. It's stunning to think about this because just less than two years ago, he became the first Democratic presidential candidate to carry the state since 1992. Now we're talking about these, this for him. Uh, 60% of voters disapprove of his performance and only about 36% give him a favorable review. That and compounding problems for Democrats, more than three quarters of likely voters, we're talking 78%, say the country is on the wrong track, while only 10% say that the U.S. is headed in the right direction. And this sort of pessimism, it pervades every block of voters. We're talking ideological boundaries, age, financial standing, education. It is across the board. And that's the economic climate I was alluding to earlier that Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams that's what they have to run against right now. And that is why they've got to outperform Joe Biden by maybe double digits by November. And it's amazing to see how across the board that pessimism is, because it sort of feels like Joe Biden is disappointing everybody all at once. You know, you typically see a big boost for at least from the president's own party. But you see in there that Democrats and progressives are just as disappointed as Republicans. I always remind myself, and therefore I'm going to talk out loud and remind everybody listening, um, that these approval ratings are not the same thing as a head-to-head matchup. Mm -hmm. You know, Joe Biden did win Georgia. It's because he was running against Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump were on the ballot, along with Joe Biden tomorrow, 
I don't think that uh, Donald Trump would have a big victory speech to be giving. I think that Joe Biden is getting just absolutely all of the extra baggage that goes along with just inheriting a situation that follows COVID. And COVID's not even quite done yet. And the country under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration made a policy choice to send more than $4 trillion out the door. I think any economist will agree that is going to result in inflation. I don't think that's a big mystery. The question is like, when is it going to end? And who has a policy to rein it in? And who's got a plan they can describe and agree that this is going to work? Uh, We have not heard that from Joe Biden yet, because it's very hard to do. If it was easy to control inflation, Jimmy Carter would have done it, and he would have been a two-term president. You know, it's almost impossible. But I think kind of the the piece for Joe Biden that he's just got to put together is to give these Democratic senators a roadmap to talk about what they have done. They have pushed out lots of money, but it's going to places that voters see. They got $2,000 checks. They're having bridges built in their neighborhoods. They are having construction projects moving forward because of all this money. Trump can also, of course, take credit for the PPP loans, but I think everybody needs to take the blame for dumping that much cash into the economy and inflation is what you're going to get. That's very hard to put into a 30 second ad. And that's why Democrats are so scared as they should be. You know, when people are having a bad run, they just want to change. And that's the danger for Raphael Warnock. I think people, and even I think it's so smart of Republicans. And I've even heard Herschel Walker say this, you know, Raphael Warnock is a nice man. He's a good person. He's just a bad senator. And Joe Biden is a worse president. And Raphael Warnock votes with Joe Biden all the time. I mean, that's a pretty clear, concise message. I probably didn't make it that concise. (laughs) Um, But that's a really strong message. And Raphael Warnock so far has been able to evade that. He's got his sort of targeted way to bring down prices, his targeted way to talk about expanding U.S. manufacturing. And I think he's been really good at talking about all of those things. Um, I think so much of this is just going to come down to how people feel in November. What's that environment? What does it look like? And um, do people feel like Joe Biden, uh, even two more years of Joe Biden, is that going to be something that they see a positive vision for or not? And that may be what determines that Senate race. The governor's race, I think, has a lot of really interesting numbers to unpack, but it feels like almost a totally different race with really different results that we're starting to see. Yeah, and the power of incumbency going, and we've talked about this before as well, but the fact that Governor Kemp hasn't issued any policy specifics, Stacey Abrams is out with even more. You know, this week she'll be out with an affordable housing plan. She talked about the economy and taxes and education and also and pay raises for law enforcement, all sorts of issues. And that also just frankly reflects the sense of urgency with her campaign because the numbers we're talking about today are not mysteries. This is not an outlier of a poll. Let me put it that way. A number of other polls and internal metrics we've seen have shown similar dynamics with Stacey Abrams, four, five, six, seven, eight points behind Brian Kemp. And it's July, but, you know, September and early voting in October is right around the corner. And so it's never too late for these candidates to lean into some new messaging. And, you know, we talked about the economy. We'll dig into some of the economy figures right now. But first, the other point I want to make is that 
these candidates, these Democratic candidates, uh, they're not steering clear of talking about inflation either because they know that as big and important as the social issues like guns and abortion and the Supreme Court rulings will be for voters, the economy will trump everything. And they're talking about gas tax breaks. They're talking about curbing uh, prescription drug prices. They're talking about tax refunds. If you're Stacey Abrams, talking about a billion dollars worth of tax refunds to help Georgians deal with uh, these, these higher prices. And Patricia, the poll, it's pretty stark. It shows that half of Georgia voters said rising costs weren't a, quote, extremely important factor in their vote, and that about a quarter of them said it was very important. So three quarters of the electorate say that rising prices, high energy prices, soaring inflation are either very important or extremely important factor in their 2022 decisions. And a majority of voters say that rising prices have had a significant negative impact on their lives. And 35% said it was a noticeable factor in their daily lives. So inflation, as we both know, is taking a toll on wallets and pocketbooks and bank accounts and is going to play a major influencing factor in the November election. I mean, there are also a few sort of big events coming up pretty soon that could intensify those feelings. I know that this is a big economic week in terms of consumer confidence numbers coming out, job growth numbers coming out. In September, the pause on student loan repayments is set to be lifted. And so there is a point at which people are about to have to start repaying their student loans if they have not been making those payments during COVID. That's going to be a big question for the Biden administration right now. That's also something that Raphael Warnock is leaning into talking about relieving some amount of student debt. So I think Americans feel like they're just getting it from every angle, like at the gas station, at the grocery store, you like open up your email and there's some note from your bank. I mean, not mine. (laughs) You know, it's just, it's just sort of everywhere. It feels so pervasive. And there is no way to unplug voters' emotions and uh, very real anxieties about the economy and then plug them into an election scenario that doesn't include those anxieties. And that's why Democrats have to really dig into finding um, if they can't have a big overall solution to inflation. That's why we're seeing them put forward these targeted solutions to both wages and to prices, individual prices, cost of, as you said, healthcare, gas, etc. One number, a couple of numbers in that governor's race poll that I think are so interesting, and I'd love your thoughts on this. Brian Kemp is doing so much better than Stacey Abrams among male voters. He has a gigantic, you usually hear about the gender gap in races because uh, one candidate is doing so much better among women. So there's usually a gender gap for women. This is sort of the opposite. Brian Kemp is running so far away with male voters. He's pulling 24 points ahead than Stacey Abrams with male voters. And Abrams is only doing nine points better with female voters. And I kind of thought that would be a different number in light of the decision on Roe v. Wade. And so that's that's a number that surprised me. Another number that surprised me, Stacey Abrams is only getting 80% of black voters. And that is lower than most Democrats typically do with black voters. Um, I don't know if that male number is embedded with, um, I, I think I'd have to see like the cross tabs of the cross tabs to see exactly which male voters we're talking about here. But those are two areas of weakness in this poll that really caught my attention and I'm sure would catch the attention of the 
the Abrams campaign as well. Yeah, and I'm sure they're seeing somewhat similar numbers. But yeah, I was looking for a reason for Kemp's five-point lead. And the first place you look is independent voters, right? Independent voters in Georgia tend to, used to tend to vote Republican. They broke for um, Democrats during the, uh, the Trump era, and we're not sure where they're going to break back. But among independents, Kemp and Abrams were roughly equal. You know, within the margin of error, there Kemp might have had a you know thirty-two to thirty, but that was within the three point three percent margin of error. So that was the biggest gap was the gender gap among men voters, and you know there's various reasons for it that we could talk about sixteen podcasts full of. But one of them is that there has been negative ads, and there's been a casting of Stacey Abrams as an arch villain for most of the last decade, and I think that's taken hold, especially in deep red communities and especially among conservative men. And that is taking a toll on her campaign numbers for sure in a way that is just not with Raphael Warnock. And then among African-Americans, this is another cause for concern. We had a story a couple of days ago about why Governor Kemp thinks he can make legitimate inroads, build support among minority voters. And one of them is that the Kemp's campaign's internal polling saw that Stacey Abrams' numbers among black voters were soft and among his, some Hispanic voters were soft. And this poll kind of bears that out. Look, we're talking 80%. So it's still an overwhelming number. But in Georgia, Democrats are used to getting 90% plus of the African-American vote. In Georgia, if a Republican gets double digits, if, if a Republican hits 10% of the black vote, it's a victory for Republicans, right? And in this case, we're, we're not looking at that right now. We're looking at Kemp is around 9 or 10%, but about 9 or 10% of black voters are saying they're undecided. Huge concern for Stacey Abrams right now. And, you know, also something, she has the resources to close that gap. She would be the first black woman elected governor in the nation's history. And essentially, she's running with Raphael Warnock, the state's first black U.S. senator, who's running slightly ahead of her among black voters, but not far ahead of her. He's got about 85% of support from black voters. And his challenge is he's going up against Herschel Walker, who's also African-American and would be the first black Republican senator elected in Georgia history. So that's going to be something very, very interesting to watch out how how the candidates uh, sharpen their appeals to black voters who are the most important constituency for Democrats in Georgia. Absolutely. Another number where Kemp has just a, a big, big lead is high school educated voters, 64% to 28%. And again, that's a number, uh, you don't have to flip these numbers, but that's the type of gap that you'd like to see close up a little bit if you are the Stacey Abrams campaign. But I think to your point, Republicans have been running against Stacey Abrams since way before Stacey Abrams got into this race. And we heard more about Stacey Abrams in 2020 from Republicans than we practically than we did in 20. 2018, uh, they were blaming Stacey Abrams for all manner of, we heard about the Stacey Abrams consent decree that Republicans called it, that it was not a consent decree. Um, We heard the entire sort of election apparatus blamed on Stacey Abrams from Republicans. Donald Trump talked about Stacey Abrams from the stage. And so she remained very much in the sort of negative consciousness with Republicans pushing out negative messages about her, while Democrats, I think, were sort of preoccupied with other business, getting two senators elected, getting other uh, candidates 
up and out in the 2020 elections. And so it does seem like there was sort of this disproportionate share of negative attention on Stacey Abrams that she might, I don't know if that's what's going on here, if she's still having to sort of make up ground and reintroduce herself in some cases to Georgia voters. Um, there's also a lot of new Georgia voters since the last time Stacey Abrams ran. Um, that was seen as a real bright spot for Democrats mm-hmm. coming into this campaign. And it may be just a matter of getting into those communities, getting to know those new voters and uh, engaging them in this election as well, convincing them that it's important to get out to the polls. Those are going to be younger voters, more minority voters. And so that's certainly a focus. That's always been a focus of Democrats, but it's most certainly a focus of Democrats going forward. And that really is a part of their coalition for victory in their minds to win Georgia and keep Georgia. They believe that this is the direction the state is going in. And so that is the playbook that they've built to get there. Um, And we also need to talk about the down ticket races. We didn't pull all the down ticket contests. We wish we could have had the, uh, we wish we could have added a lot more, but we only have so much money for so many questions. And we did ask a lot of questions on different issues that we'll talk about in future shows. But we were able to poll for two down ticket contests. The first one is Lieutenant Governor. Republican Burt Jones had a 41 to 36 edge over the Democrat Charlie Bailey. 7% backed Libertarian Ryan Graham. Oftentimes those poll numbers end up kind of shrinking as the election nears, but he's at 7% right now. And 16% is undecided. That includes one third of independents who say they haven't made up their minds yet. So the Republican has a lead as we expected in that race, but uh, Charlie Bailey is within striking distance. But Patricia, I think the bigger surprise to me, especially if you had told me this last year around this time, is that the only candidate that we polled, the only race we polled with a candidate with a clear major lead was Secretary of State. Brad Raffensberger, who of course is, is most Crazy. famous for rejecting Trump's demand to reverse his defeat. He's leading Bean Wen 46-32 with the help of 16% of Democrats who are saying they're crossing party lines to back him. We've heard from Bean Wen saying over and over again, Brad Raffensberger is not your friend because she knows that her biggest concern is crossover votes from Democrats and moderates who admired his stand against Donald Trump. Well, that is coming into play right now because Brad Raffensperger, he's not above the 50% mark. There's still a significant number of undecideds and folks who just aren't tuned into the race. But right now, if you're part of the Democratic brain trust, you're worried a little bit. You're worried that Brad Raffensperger has a 14-point lead in our poll and no other candidate is even close to that. I mean, talk about an unlikely story from where Raffensperger sat this time last year when I talked to Republicans who um, were seeing in their own polling that Raffensperger had about a third of support from Republican voters, and they didn't even bother to think about Brad Raffensperger as a general election candidate. You know, I want to cue like the Rudy soundtrack, you know, that movie. <laughs> Shane, Rudy. This, is your, this is your cue. <laughs> Rudy. <laughs> so Raffensperger has like just blasted back from the dead. And here he is, like dominating this poll. It is crazy. It's just a crazy turn of events. It's not done yet. We have three and a half months left until election day. So these numbers could change. But this is by far the biggest gap in this entire poll, except Joe Biden's underwater numbers. So you'd want to be in Raffensperger's position more than that. And he is just dominating this race. And I do I when B Win got into this race. I think there is a strong assumption by everybody else mm-hmm. in the state. I'm not going to say what was in her head, but that she would be running against Jody Heiss, Republican 
Congressman Jody Heiss, who got up on that stage with Donald Trump when Trump came back after 2020, still saying that he had had the election lost and stolen. And Jody Heiss sat there next to him and said, you know, this this would not happen under my watch. And he really committed to Donald Trump on a stage that he would have done something totally different than Brad Raffensperger. So if, had this been a contest against Jody Heiss versus B-Win, the contrast between Jody Heiss and this very petite young woman who of Vietnamese background who is a state representative they could not be more different and from their messages to what they would have done in the election um, she in her own role as a state representative during that election recount did some of her own election investigations and sort of debunked the Trump claims one by one in a hearing in a house hearing so she kind of rocketed to national attention so just one national awards from Emily's List for being a rising star. And so had she be running against Jody Heiss, it would have been a much different race. I think running against Raffensperger, her job got so much harder because it is so hard to say Brad Raffensperger is dishonest and is a Trump crony and is a party loyalist conservative hack you know he he's so famous for being the opposite of that right now that it's, it's just a much harder race for her to run um she does say over and over brad raffensperger is not a friend for georgia voters she has all sorts of data to back that up she has all of the other data points showing that brad raffensperger supported sb202 that brad raffensperger supported sort of purging ballots um has all sorts of Aggies, accusations to go into greater detail but it's much much harder with Raffensperger's kind of statewide, nationwide, almost international identity as the man who didn't buckle under the pressure of his own president to overturn a valid election. And that's a very hard hill to climb. Yeah. And of all the Democrats on the statewide ballot, she might have the biggest challenge because of that crossover appeal, right? Because we just saw Brad Raffensperger testify before the January 6th committee, get all sorts of national attention. Because the Democratic crossover is frankly helping him blunt that we, we did see evidence in the poll of a sort of soft support among Republicans, you know, still well, you know, well into the higher reaches of the electorate, but not as strong as, say, Governor Kemp, who has 93%, 94% of the Republican electorate. Uh, so uh, that Democratic crossover, that moderate crossover, that independent crossover is going to help Brad Raffensperger in a huge, huge way. And Patricia, I think you've got one of your next columns. <laughs> you can just take what you just said and write it for one of your next Sunday columns because that was a perfect summation of the race, at least in my view, of the Secretary of State's race, which which had the potential to be this sort of nationally watched, very, and still is one of the premier down-ballot races in Georgia and around the nation. But, but because Jody Heiss is not the nominee, because you don't have someone who literally said that they wouldn't have certified the election, and bought into all of Donald Trump's lies, it has lost that sort of edge for a lot of voters. And there are voters who, who, as we see, who are willing to go support Brad Raffensperger, even if they vote Democratic the rest of the ballot. Yeah, I do think that um, that uh, it, it's lost its edge. Again, anything can happen. You yeah. just never know. But it, that was a spread and that race that even I was not expecting. So b certainly has her work cut out for her. But again, she is really seen as a rising star. She's an absolute favorite of 
other statewide Democrats, um, Democrats nationally. She is on their radar without a doubt. So she will be able to continue to fundraise. Um, Numbers like this are not great for fundraising, but she'll continue to have allies and people in her corner. Um, She will continue to have a very high profile. But the question about whether this race is winnable with a number like this, it's, um, you know, it's got to be concerning for other Democrats on the table. And look, sometimes numbers like this are a wake-up call to your supporters. Sometimes they can they can be a, a turning point. Um, so we'll see. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluston, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the AJC, and we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter. Some of us write it really late. Some of us write it really early in the morning. But we think it sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community now, right now, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts in your first month of unlimited digital access. It's just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. And we'll have more analysis on the polls. We'll have more analysis on the state of the races in the jolt this morning and throughout the rest of the week and probably for the next few weeks uh, until our next poll comes out. But Patricia, um, you know, I, I mentioned how you're the early riser. I'm the late guy. You stayed out pretty late over the weekend. We got to hang out together at a Braves game. And I got to say, one of the most impressive parts of the Braves game had nothing to do with anything that was going on in the field. We had the chance to meet a uh, Braves executive who was handing our kids those cool replica World Series championship rings. And I was there with my older daughter. You were there with your daughter. When they gave my daughter one, she was nice and polite. She said, thank you. When uh, he gave your daughter one of the replica rings, what was the first thing out of her mouth? Can you give my brother Henry one? I thought that was so cool. And my daughter, I was like, well, where's the request for Brooke, Nicole? Why didn't didn't you ask for it? And she said, Nicole doesn't even like baseball. Brooke doesn't even like baseball, which is true. But I thought it was really cool that your daughter was so thoughtful. Oh, thank you. And Greg, I would like to give you the Parent of the Year Award because I feel like I sort of get the Parent of the Year Award in my daughter's opinion for this reason. And Greg gets full credit. I made Harper wear a dress to the Braves game. 
<laughs> because um, I was like, well, we're going to be seeing my bosses. And I think it's very respectful for us to go in a dress. I'm going to wear a dress. You're going to wear a dress. I mean, they were casual dresses. These were summer dresses, but still. So she's all excited. She's wearing a dress. We walk in and everybody is wearing shorts and T-shirts. And she turns around. And she's like, I am so and I did not I was just frozen I'm like well it's fine you gotta own it it's no problem and then Greg walked straight up to me he's like go buy her a t-shirt and so I went and bought her a t-shirt and she just happened to have her baseball shorts on under her dress and Greg saved the day so thank you so much my guilt I was just crumbling under the (laughs) weight of it (laughs) and you saved the day I don't think anyone even noticed and I had my friend McGriff jersey on. My daughter had her Dansby Swanson, that's her favorite jersey on, but it was a great game. And the Braves are, uh, you know, we're, we had, we've had a little losing streak, but we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. But oh, we'll be great. I believe. I'm right a believer. Distance. And we'll, we'll, I can't wait to see what Alex figures out for trade deadline now that Adam Duvall is out for the rest of the season. But that is for another podcast. I'll be the special <laughs> guest on the, uh, the, the Justin's <laughs> Braves podcast. Uh, I've only met him once, but uh, but he'll be like, yeah, you'll, you'll come on. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the what happened in this Fulton County special grand jury and really outside of the Fulton County special grand jury as well, because we've had some major developments. We talked last week about how Burt Jones, the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor, um, was issued a target letter along with every other fake GOP elector. So all 16 of them got target letters saying that they could be prosecuted, they could face criminal charges for being involved in that plot. Now, um, 11 of those fake electors basically tried to fight the subpoenas and they lost. Well, Burt Jones wasn't one of them. Burt Jones took a completely different angle. He said, look, I'm happy to cooperate, but I won't be cooperating if Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is the one asking the questions. And why is that? Well, it's because Fonnie Willis hosted a fundraiser for his opponent, Charlie Bailey. There's reason for that. Fonnie Willis goes way back with Charlie Bailey. They both were basically line prosecutors together in Fulton County, but long before he was the nominee and, and she was elected the Fulton DA. So they are truly friends. But at the same time, the judge in this case, Robert McBurney, said it didn't pass the smell test. It just it just looked bad. And he ruled in a very surprising ruling that legal experts were shocked by, frankly. He ruled that Fonnie Willis was disqualified from handling this specific uh, situation. She still, of course, is overall handling the overall case, but she will not be handling any sort of inquiry into Burt Jones. So it was seen as a huge victory for Burt Jones, Patricia, his campaign blasted out the news and it won this legal action. Charlie Bailey's campaign said, hey, it doesn't shroud the point, doesn't cloud the point that he's still one of the fake electors. That might be one of the biggest issues in this campaign. But clearly there was legal maneuvering that at least in this instance worked out in Burt Jones's favor. Oh, yeah. It was a huge victory for Burt Jones. And it's not just symbolic. It has an actual real effect on the potential prosecution of his case because that's been pushed over to a different group of prosecutors. They're going to be in charge of naming somebody to handle the case instead of Fonnie Willis's office. But Pete Scandalakis, who's the head of that group of prosecutors, said that they're in no particular rush to name somebody. He said it might be more wise to see how the rest of this case plays out. And so it looks like it is going to have um, an effective delay on anything that might have happened with Burt Jones. And this is all while Burt Jones 
is a statewide candidate. And so all of a sudden, Burt Jones goes from being the target of one of the biggest investigations in the country to sort of being a victim of uh, sort of a partisan witch hunt of which the judge sort of agreed. So, I mean, it really changed his circumstances quite dramatically. And I think that also in terms of Fonnie Willis's profile, I think it, it is just damaging. I don't think it's hugely damaging, but certainly we're going to hear from other people who are targets, other people who are a part of this trial and say, hey, well, she's been disqualified from this case. They're not going to mention that it's only for Burt Jones, but they are going to, I'm sure, play this as a refrain over and over and over. And it's an investigation that you really want to have really sealed off from any kind of questions about political motivations or interference. It did feel very sealed off for quite some time. And this was the first time there's really been any kind of movement in the other direction. And uh, for it to be such a high profile public rebuke by the judge of Fannie Willis, to your point, it just came as a huge surprise. Nobody was expecting that. They certainly weren't expecting this sort of public in court for everyone to hear rebuke. He also criticized her for appearing on national uh, media so much. And um, it really didn't, uh, I certainly would never say it set the case back. It doesn't change any of the facts of the case, but it was the first time that Fonnie Willis has gotten anything except sort of glowing press treatment, sort of heroic profile pieces. And now this was uh, just sort of the first time that it was going in the other direction for her and for the investigation. Yeah. And Judge McBurney has a sterling reputation. You know, he was appointed to the Fulton County Superior Court by Nathan Deal, uh, way back when, but before that, he was a federal prosecutor who specialized in corruption cases, counterterrorism cases, very well known, very busy, <laughs> because not only does he have this case, he's also just got assigned, uh, unless something has changed you know, between now and when this airs, but he's also just recently assigned the state challenge to the uh, anti-abortion law. So he is going to be very, very, very busy over the next few weeks. There's other avenues of this case that continue to move ahead. Um, Governor Kemp, delivered videotape testimony. Um, he did not appear in person. He delivered videotape testimony. And Patricia, this was very important to the case too, because we know so much about Donald Trump's call to Brad Raffensperger. We've reported on how David Ralston, the House Speaker, was also pressured by Donald Trump to call a special session to reverse the election outcome. He also testified before the grand jury, presumably about that pressure from Donald Trump and other issues as well. But for Governor Kemp, very little was known. We reported at the time that Trump called him up and pushed him to call a special session. But there's no recording that we've ever heard. We've had very few details about exactly what Donald Trump urged him to do. And under oath, the governor, in his testimony, was expected to talk about that, was expected to outline the contours of that Donald Trump pressure. Yeah, and it's so interesting that even though we have known um, from almost the moment it happened, everything that happened in that call between Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger, all of those other details, as you said, all of those other calls were extremely limited. We didn't even know in some cases who he had called or how many times he had called them. So the special grand jury is going to get insight into all of that. What we have found out since the Brad Raffensperger call and through these January 6th hearings is we have heard the nature of the calls that Trump placed to other state officials in other states, including in Arizona. 
just absolutely berating those officials to call a special session, insisting that they had the authority to do it when they didn't, calling them over and over and over again. So there is going to be so much information. It it would be very unusual for Donald Trump not to have done that with Georgia's other officials. Um, Those officials have kept extremely quiet. It has not really been in their best interest to go out um, guns blazing and say, hey, hey, everybody, guess what? Um, You know, I think they also wanted to kind of keep the state out of Donald Trump's focus. They wanted to kind of just be minding their own business, run their own elections, and not do anything more once the election was decided and certified, not do anything more than they needed to do to just kind of keep uh, minding their own business. Well, that has changed with the special grand jury situation. Well, I don't know, Patricia, it worked out for Brad Raffensperger so Well, far, that's true. Maybe everybody else would be <laughs> winning that 14 points. Governor, if you listen to us and you and you recorded a tape of your phone call with uh, Donald Trump, you, you know where to send it. Uh, <laughs> Bluestein at gmail.com. Bring it on. Um, <laughs> one more thing to talk about with the Fulton County special grand jury is that uh, this happened in federal court, but uh, Congressman Jody Heiss who is involved in a lot of the promoting a lot of the Trump lies about election fraud, who was vanquished by Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in that Republican primary. He was also subpoenaed to testify, presumably about his efforts to promote election falsehoods. But we're not sure. We just don't know all the contours of what of, of why they wanted him to testify. Well, he will have to testify a federal judge ruled, but there are going to be guardrails about what investigators can ask and what they can't ask. So expect to see him or hear about him, at least testifying behind closed doors in the Fulton County Special Grand Jury very soon. Well, coming up on Friday's episode, we'll talk more about the poll. We'll talk more about the developments, but we'll also do our new favorite segment. We'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can call into right now. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. And we've got it staffed 24-7 by an intern, um, <laughs> by actually four different shifts of interns. You just have to sit there waiting for your calls. Uh, you can call anytime and leave a question for Patricia or for me or for both of us. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Go ahead and program it in your phone because you know you're going to want to ask multiple questions. Let us hear from you. Yes. And we had some awesome questions last week, some really, really smart questions. And then one question that was very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) We had a few that were confusing we didn't play. We'll see uh, what's in the mailbag and we'll see how many of Greg's friends and family call in with prank calls. (laughs) We did get one from my mom's ex-boyfriend, Art. Um, It was great to hear him talk about Air Force One. It's a real aviation buff, yeah. This is really <laughs> the question went on for about 18 minutes. Um, so thank us for not playing it later. Patricia and I really appreciate you spending time with us on Politically Georgia. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday and every Friday. And really, whenever big news breaks, we will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about like historically black colleges and universities, Atlanta's thriving art scene, and the city's growing neighborhoods. 
Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.